0: Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, on our last podcast, we contemplated the meaning of life in our discussion of the book of Ecclesiastes and how only God can put an end to our chasing after the wind and bring hope, purpose, and contentment to our lives. Today we explore one of the most mysterious and perhaps misunderstood books of the Bible, Revelation.
1: Yes, certainly the book of Revelation is, in all probability, maybe the the most misunderstood book in the Bible. Um, You know, the other name for Revelation is uh, Apocalypsis, which literally is made up of two words, meaning uh, pulling away a veil. Hmm. So, I mean, there is some mystery to the book of uh, Revelation. And part of the mystery is um, all the different methods of interpretation. People have tried to interpret it in in basically different ways. Um, if I might, if I might say that there are basically four major approaches to understanding the Book of Revelation. There's the the, the futurist school that sees everything as a future event. There's the historicist view, which basically um, depicts the events of Revelation in in a historical context. And there's the preterist view, which is the view basically that says that the book um, speaks and the events that, of which it speaks refer to the first century. And then there's the idealist school that talks basically in terms of, don't tie this down to history. These are images that are symbolic. And the truth really lies in the fact that I believe not one of those four schools has the entire truth, but uh, we can discern truth from each of the schools Hmm. as we seek to understand and uncover the mystery of the book of Revelation.
0: Well, it's certainly a very deep book um, and a very challenging read, I think. Um, Before we dive in, perhaps an inductive overview of Revelation?
1: Yeah, there are 22 chapters, as you know, and uh, basically the content shifts uh, quite drastically and dramatically through the book. The, f- the opening chapters are letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven is significant because seven is the number of completion. So in, in, in essence, this is a message to the complete church. So you have those first three chapters that deal with specific letters to specific churches, telling them how they need to behave. Hmm. And then in chapters four and five, You've got this this outburst of praise and celebration um, in heaven um, Celebrating the creator and celebrating the redeemer chapter 4 is the creator chapter 5 the the redeemer and then from chapter 6 through 16 That major section of the of the book you basically have what I would call the the woes upon the earth mm. you have the the seven the the judgments on the earth the seven seals the seven trumpets the seven signs seven bowls and so forth things change then in chapter 17 to the remaining part of the book because in 17 and 18 you have the destruction of babylon in 19 and 20 you have the conquest of the lamb and then in 21 and 22 you have paradise restored so that would be basic you know there's basically there's the, the opening chapters letters the praise of heaven the woes upon earth destruction of babylon conquest of the lamb and final uh, paradise
0: hmm. well it's all actually rather terrifying i know that you have said uh, in our previous podcast you said it's actually meant as an encouragement which i think is interesting which i'm sure we will unpack during the course of this podcast I do have a an interesting question or a question that's interesting to me in the prologue John tells us blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy why does God want us to read it aloud and what possible blessing could we receive by reading this prophecy aloud
1: that's an interesting question you know the the fascinating thing for me is is this is the only biblical book that promises a blessing to the reader that's quite amazing And basically what we have there is it's written to a church that is going through turmoil and difficulty and persecution tribulation if you will and God is reaching out to that church to encourage them in their faith and basically he's saying you know take this let it be an encouragement to you let it be an inspiration to you let it be a blessing to you in the face of the persecution that you're that you're going through um, and so he introduces right from the very get go you have an introduction to the triune god and um, and then john 's commission to write these things for the upbuilding of the church.
0: Why is it that so many Christians seem to shy away from reading the book of revelation
1: isn 't that true and so many preachers also don 't seem to want to preach uh, preach on it except for mm-hmm. the first three chapters. Most people are happy reading and studying the first three chapters they 're pretty straightforward after mm-hmm. all they 're the letters to the seven churches, um, you know, this is, uh, they can name criticism and, and confrontation and, and challenges and commendations and so forth. But um, I think it's because um, the, of the difficulty of interpretation. I've mentioned the four schools of thought, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and these are four major approaches to understanding. And, and so people don't really know which school, if any, uh, to follow you know, is this all about the future, or is it is it for first century Christians? Or, and in reality, one can take truth from each of these different schools to understand it aright, because there are some futurist elements and there are some preterist elements and there there are some ideal uh, idealist uh, elements and there are some historicist elements. I mean, uh, we can learn from all of these schools, which I think is really important. But ultimately, this book was written to encourage Christians who were going through persecution, difficulty, problems, uh, tribulation, and it when understood in that context, the book of Revelation is really a magnificent book, and and, and it's it's not as mysterious as it would first appear. We see the major structure of the book and where the writer John the Divine is going. You know, he's basically talking to the churches and saying this is this is a message to the entire church. And he starts off strangely with this great celebration in heaven, chapters four and five. And at first, I wondered why on earth is he starting with celebration and then going to judgment. You know, normally, normally you would think it would come judgment would come and then celebration. But, but no, it's the, it's it's the celebration. So right from the get-go, having addressed the churches, John the Divine is eager to say, basically, listen, this in the last analysis is God's world. When we look around today at our politics and the situation throughout the world, we sometimes uh, are prone to despair. But it is a reminder right from the beginning of the book of Revelation that this is not the devil's world. This is God's world at the last. So everything that follows all the judgments on the earth from chapter 6 to chapter 16 really need to be seen within the context of a universal celebration in heaven where God is in control. And even when we get to the end of the book, by the way, and you get the resurgence of Satan in the world, even that is limited by what God allows him to do, which is interesting. Hmm. But hopefully we'll come to that as we go along.
0: Well, you mentioned the four schools of thought. You said that there's some element of truth in each of them. Is there one that you believe to be the correct one or a more correct one?
1: No, I don't believe one of them has the whole truth, that's the whole point. I don't think you know, one wants to imbibe everything that one particular school of thought um, suggests. I think the truth is to be found in all of these schools of thinking. And so what we have is a situation where you have a church in the first century that is, um, that is suffering persecution, that, mm. that is self-evident. And obviously John is writing to that to that church. I mean that's that's so in that sense the preterists are quite correct in understanding it that way. He's providing hope, he's providing assurance because of that, you know, and, and you'll notice even in the opening language of the book he will he will talk in terms of these things are coming soon. Mm-hmm. So it is basically written to first century Christians, no question. But at the same time, there's a future perspective, especially when we get to the latter chapters, chapters 20 and 21 in particular, where we talk about a future a future world, a future uh, phenomenon uh, that will occur. And then you have within the book itself, you know the fulfillment of these of these judgments, um, you have both immediate fulfillments and ultimate fulfillment. So the historicist school uh, will offer us some insight there. Uh, because fulfillment can be both, there can be immediate fulfillment to a prophecy and there can be distant fulfillment to a prophecy. And we, we'll get into that as, as we go along as well. And of course symbolism is a very important part of the book of right. Revelation. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery that comes from the book of Ezekiel, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Kings, and so forth and so on. And, and the numbers that are used are, are often very symbolic. The number seven, for example, is used 59 times in the book. The number four is used 35 times. The number 12 is used 22 times. The number 1,000 is used 30 times. So, so, so the idealist is something to tell us. So what I'm saying is that we can learn from all of the four schools, but we don't have to imbibe, we don't have to say any one of them has the whole truth i think they all offer insight into the book that it is good for us to uh uh, to understand
0: so then it makes reading the book a little bit more complicated if if we have to consider these four views as we read it or is there a better way to to read the book
1: no i don't think we need to go to the book with an a priori understanding that this is the preterist view or this is i think we need to understand it for what it's worth itself and and how the the writer structures the book and what language he uses to describe these events. And the reality is that there's so much misunderstanding that could be easily explained, if you will, uh, as we go through the book. For example, uh, you have an understanding among many that there's some kind of chronology uh, in the book. Um, Well, there isn't a chronology in the book. Because, you know, the world is destroyed in so many different ways, in so many different terms, through the seven seals and the, and the seven trumpets and the seven signs and the seven bulls and, and, and so on. I mean, you can't keep destroying the earth. But, you know, I mean, there is no chronology that way. They're basically different ways of looking at the same event. And so all those judgments basically are, are messages of the judgment of God upon the earth for its rebellion that will reach its climax in the, in the fullness of time. One needs to understand the book basically on the basis of its own text, of its own context, of its own language, of its own genre, uh, that the writer is eager to point out as we we go along. Hmm. So, um, you know, when you approach the early chapters, um, you have um, those straightforward, you know, we've talked about chapter one, the commission to write uh, this book, uh, on the part of John, chapters two and three, The message to the the churches, the commendation, the criticism, the challenges. The church in Ephesus is encouraged to love more. um, uh, Smyrna is encouraged to faithfulness. Pergamum is encouraged to truth. Thyatira to purity. Sardis to life. Philadelphia to mission. Laodicea to passion. And then you have at the end of that section this this beautiful picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he says now the interesting thing is that that is seen within the context of those three chapters chapters 2 and 3 in particular which is a message to the church so often that that verse behold I stand at the door and knock is used evangelistically to non-Christians which is absolutely fine I mean it certainly works you can preach uh, to a non-believing community that God is standing knocking at the door of their hearts I mean I certainly embrace that concept But if we were to understand that context that that verse within its proper context in revelation jesus is not standing at the door knocking on the hearts of non-believers he's actually standing knocking at the door of the church asking Hmm. can he come in to the church which is a great message to the church today as it was to the first century jesus is basically talking to all these churches that the church that needs greater love greater purity greater faithfulness He's saying, now then, listen, I'm standing at the door of, of the church and I'm knocking to get in. Will hmm. You let me in so that you can become the kind of church that I'm calling you to be.
0: It's a marvelous picture, but it's also somewhat devastating to think that Jesus is knocking at H- <laughs> the church's door and we're not letting him in.
1: That is correct. That is correct.
0: You have said in other podcasts that the um, that the way an author places, or organizes his material is significant. It seems to me that chapters two and three represent appeals to the church, to a greater commitment, Um, and then John paints a picture of heaven. Um, Why would he do that?
1: What I think John the Divine is is attempting to tell us is, you know, kingdoms come and go. Empires come and they go. Um, All throughout human history, different, kings, different empires have risen to power and faded away. God's empire will last forever. And so chapter uh, 4 has to do with God as the great creator and the worship of the creator. And then into chapter 5 you have the, 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 the worship of the creator turning to the worship of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's incredibly beautiful. Those those two chapters are... So it's a, it's a glimpse into heaven right from the get-go before we encounter all the various judgments on the earth. And, and believe me, 11 chapters of them, you know, 6 to 16, uh, our plate is going to be more than full with these, you know, blood-drenched judgments um, upon the earth. But what it is, is at the very beginning, a glimpse into the glory and the majesty and magnificence of a God whose kingdom rules over all and forever. And, and indeed, you know, in chapter 5, when the cry goes up, you know, who will open the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll, which basically represents the saga of human history. And no one, as the cry goes out, no one is worthy to open the saga of human history. Only the lamb who steps forward and Hmm. the first seal is opened. And so we have the beginning, end of the judgment.
0: It's interesting that he paints a picture of heaven and and that in our world we focus so much attention on hell and its consequences, uh, many times in a joking manner, sadly, uh, and so little on heaven and its rewards. What do you think that is?
1: I think that's uh, that's a fascinating observation. I mean, um, heaven is such a uh, an amorphous concept for human beings. I mean, it's um, you watch a movie, you watch a TV show, you and on the movie someone dies, and and there's a kind of what 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 I would term pop theology, Hmm. you know, where everybody goes to heaven, you know. So there's no distinction about heaven, and, and there's no mention you know, of, of hell, because in that sense, you know, everyone is going to inhabit a future life, whether it's through incarnation, whether it's through a transmission into to some sense of nirvana or whatever the case might be. Here we have a very vivid depiction of what heaven is like and the fact that it is a place of worship and celebration. And it's also a place where the Creator, God the Father, and the Redeemer, God the Son, is worshipped, magnified, and glorified. It is all about the worshipping of the Creator and the and the Redeemer. So that it's it, it does away with this popular, this Pop theology, you know, where everybody's in heaven having great, great fun. The focus of heaven is upon the Creator and the Redeemer. So um I think it is incredibly wonderful that John the Divine introduces that picture right at the, at the very beginning. At first, I thought it was rather strange, but the more I thought about it, he's basically setting the bar. In view of what is going to come to the, to the earth, do not take your eyes off heaven and the celebration that is going on there. Yeah. And we're going to see that, by the way, permeating throughout the book. But it's very important to make the statement clear right from the, from the very beginning.
0: So it's an encouragement before we get into the darkness of, uh, of what's about to happen.
1: Very much so. Very much the case. I mean, I think that's, what he, that, that's why he has placed this celebration right after the message to the churches and prior to the, uh, the judgments on the earth. I think hmm. it is very, very significant that he's done that.
0: Is it the end of the world? Well. I
1: mean that's 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 an interesting that's an interesting question. Um, what I want to say is that, that, that these chapters, the, the next section of the book, if you will. Now we've dealt with the first section being the introduction and then the letters to the churches and then the celebration in heaven. The next major and certainly more chapters than anything else has to do with um, the the tragedies that will befall the earth. Now I believe again that chapters 6 through 16, need to be read together as one great description hmm. of, the, of the doom upon the earth. The seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, seven bowls, they represent the past, the present, and the future. Now that's interesting, you see, because I don't think, to, to, you know, to answer your question, is this the end of the world, I don't think the end of the world is, is essentially um, depicted in Revelation as, as um, I mean, there is an end that will come. We will see it in the destruction of Babylon and the conquest of the Lamb in chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. But, but what we have here is the saga of human history, which le- reaches back into the past, describes the present, and points to the future. And each one builds upon the other. They're not mutually exclusive. They kind of build to a crescendo, if you will, because when you have the, the seals, you know, and you have the the seven horsemen of the apocalypse and so forth, what they depict are societal ills, hmm. natural catastrophes, wars and poverty, famine, and, and those are as old as the human race. Right. I mean, that's not. There's nothing new there. That's been. That's always been the case. But but the difference is that God is in control here. The white horse, you remember, it represents conquest. The red horse, bloodshed. The black horse, economic hardship. The pale horse, death. Leading up to the fact that when eventually we understand the, the drama of human history, no one escapes that history. And it ends ultimately in cosmic upheaval. Another interesting thing about about these seven seals and trumpets and so forth is often between the sixth and the seventh there's an interlude. For example, between the seals and the trumpets there's an interlude in chapter 7 and you have the protection of the saints and they're numbered 144,000. Now again, it's a symbolic number doesn't mean that there's literally 144,000 redeemed people. Obviously, there are a lot more than that. Mm. But 144 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. All symbolic numbers. And and even the 12 tribes that are mentioned, you know, it says it will gather the 12 tribes. They're not the same 12 tribes as the Old Testament 12 tribes, interestingly. So then the seventh seal heralds the seven trumpets. And they're also natural disasters, societal ills but they add the infusion of evil, of demonic uh, events, evil angels. So basically each judgment builds upon the next. It reiterates what, what the other one says and then it builds upon. And then the seventh the trumpet announces the seven bowls of wrath. So again, you know, this is not a chronological thing. This is not how the earth is going to end as such. This is just different perspectives of the same thing that have begun in the past continue in the present and will be will reach their summation in the future so by the time you get to to the bowls of wrath you see these are these are simply different emphases of of judgment for example if you look back in chapter 6 during the seals the sun has already turned black the moon has already turned to blood the stars are already falling to earth So, and if the stars fall to the earth, there's no earth, (laughs) you know? There's no earth to destroy them when it comes to the trumpets and and the bowls. So, basically, you cannot take this in a chronological sequential way. It's not meant to be that. It is simply a means of kind of taking this picture of judgment and turning it on its axis every now and again, and looking at it through different spectacles.
0: But why do it three times, basically?
1: Actually, four times it would be. I think it's a way I think it's a way of emphasizing um, it's it's you know this is the way it's going to be now do you understand this is the way it's going to be no uh, I better make this very clear to you this is the way it's gonna be there's going to be an end and no one's going no one's going to you know don't think you're going to uh, escape this this you know it talks about the kings of the earth the, the princes of the earth the, the priests of the earth the people of the earth everybody every component of society no one will escape this, no amount of money that you have, no amount of prestige that you have, no amount of status that you have, no importance or whatever that you have. All people, this, this judgment is going to affect every aspect of the human condition and the world in which we live. That's basically the message of chapter 6 through 16.
0: Is there any light in this darkness of destruction?
1: Yeah, again, I, I see the, those little glimmers of light between the, the sixth and the seventh episode, you know, the sixth and the seventh seal. You have the protection of the saints. That's lovely. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous. He's going to protect them. And then between the sixth and seventh trumpet, you've got that interlude again. And in this interlude, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, you've got an angel. He carries a scroll which represents salvation history and redemption. This is in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, you have the two witnesses. um, And there's great debate over who the two witnesses are, but I'll tell you who the two witnesses are. It's very simple, Mm -hmm. really. The two witnesses are the law and the prophets. Now there's a lot of reason why I said that, but basically that's what it is. And the law and the prophets are testifying to the ultimate vindication of the saints. So when the final trumpet sounds, heaven rejoices, Victory is secure, God's rule is begun. So again, it is, it is a book that is written to encourage, not to terrify. When these things happen, basically it is saying these things are gonna happen. These things have been happening from the beginning of time. They they continue into every, every aspect of human history. Even today we see them all around us. Poverty, famine, war, conflict, they're there. They're part and parcel of death, They're all there. But things will reach its final culmination. But through the entire process, from in the past, the present, and the future, God is going to take care of those who love him. That's what it's saying. He's going to protect them. He's going to hide them away so that they will be spared. And ultimately, that they will be vindicated. And the two witnesses, by the way, if you examine the attributes of them, uh, you see they they speak of Elijah and Moses. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. And so basically the two witnesses is the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Bible constitute those witnesses. And so using the idealistic or the, the idealist school, that there's symbolic language here. Basically, what it's saying is that because, because Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets, then the, these, the witness to the, to the truth of God's word is, in fact, God's word. Hmm. And you know the Bible has often been described as, you know, because Jesus will often say, you know, you've heard this written in the, in the law and the prophets as it says in the law and the prophets. Re- basically, the law and the prophets is another way of, of saying hmm. Holy Scripture
0: so uh now the the darkness uh, has passed what's next
1: well you you, you've, you we've come through the seals and through the trumpets and um and then you know you're ready you, you anticipate that um, the, the, the trumpets are going to herald in the seven uh, bowls or the seven plagues you can call them whatever you want but it doesn't it in, instead he it, it introduces seven signs which in turn introduce the seven plagues now, in inductive Bible study, we, we refer to this phenomenon as intercalation. That is to say that the writer uh, imposes a section where you would not anticipate that interpolation. And so if he does that, he does it with a purpose in mind. And basically what John, why John does that, I believe, is he wants to encourage the persecuted church. God has decisively uh, defeated evil. Satan has been cast out of heaven. He knows his time is short. And so these are fantastic signs or images that depict the story of salvation itself. And in these seven signs, basically, if I might summarize them, basically what we're saying, or what John, I think, is indicating, is that Israel gave birth to a Messiah under the protection of God. But the Messiah was taken up into heaven, and so Satan could no longer chase the messiah so he he wages war against the saints it's very clear in these signs Hmm. and then you have the antichrist revealed in the form of the beast but what is so often missed you see when we talk about the beast and again the symbolic of satan is that god sets a limit to what the beast can do now let me just look up here well, I have it. Chapter 13, I believe. Um, chapter 13, verse 5 says, And the beast was given a month uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, we ought not to miss that. Basically, he was given a month. Who gave him the month? Right. Obviously, God limited what the beast could do. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Well, who did the allowance? Basically, it is emphasizing again that God is the one who is in control of all things, of human affairs, of human destiny, of the affairs of the world, and eventually when the world comes to its end. Now, in chapter 13 further on, uh, the beast is joined by a second beast, The first beast is is from the sea, you might remember. The second beast is from the earth. And that beast is the one who compels everyone to wear the mark of the first beast.
0: Hmm. What is that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, you hear often people talk about the mark of the beast. What's the mark of the beast? I remember when I, uh, one time I was, um, uh, I had an annual physical. I went to a doctor in in Texas and. um, and he was uh, saying, you know, do you have any sensation in your in your hand and so forth? I said, yes, I'm, I have normal sensation. And he said, well, uh, I'm going to write something in the palm of your hand. You tell me what it is, see? And I said, okay. And so he wrote with his finger on the palm of my hand, 666. <laughs> He just did it for he just did it for fun. He knew, you know, he knew as a theologian, and so I started. He said, "Do you know what that is?" And I started laughing. You see, I said, "Have you imprinted the mark of the beast on me?" You know, I mean, it was kind of it was, it was. And he laughed. You know, he was. I believe he was a Christian man. You know, it was just a fun kind of thing. But the mark of the beast is essentially a means of identification, specifically the identification of the beast itself. So 666 represents the name of the beast. Now, I find it fascinating that uh, there is a science of which I am not, uh, uh, I'm not a proponent or I'm not a a practitioner, that's a better word, um, called uh, gematria, people who study um, and have, have for centuries studied numbers and their relationship to names. In particular letters and uh, they have um, those who study who've made this study and I certainly have no reason why to question them I believe their their science is authentic and and so forth um, but they they have uncovered the fact that the number of, uh, of, of Nero's name at uh, the Emperor Nero uh, in that time came to the number 666 so you might say oh well then the Preterists the Preterist school is the correct one. That's a school that, that points out that these, this, the, the, all these things happen in the first century. Well, certainly that, that's a good argument for, uh, for the preterist point of view. And, and it seems to me that that is certainly the case um, because John actually writes in verse 18 of chapter 13, he, he says, this calls for wisdom. Let him who is understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. Now interestingly what he says, let him who is understanding reckon the number of the beast. And this is written obviously in the first century. So those people to whom he was writing knew exactly that John the Divine was speaking of Nero. Hmm. And the reason he put it in, in code form was I presume because the church was facing persecution, if this document fell into the hands of uh, uh, of the Roman authorities, it would have made their case even more uh, dangerous. Hmm. So he's writing in in some kind of code, but he says you will understand who I'm talking about. That's the essence of this verse. I'm going to tell you who the beast is, but I'm going to tell you in a code. But you know, you you can figure this out, and the number that I'm going to tell you is the number. 666. Six, six. Now, interestingly, 666 six, six, numerically, I uh, don't mean to insult anyone's intelligence, but it's one less than 777, seven, seven, <laughs> seven, which is the perfect number. You know, and I think that's significant. It's 777 seven, seven would be the number of completion or perfection. So 666 six, six is a very significant number symbolically. And the people who do Grammatria actually have pointed out that uh, if you take the, the name of Jesus himself, that that number becomes 888, which is, which is mm. above perfection, you know. Now, I, I, I depend on others who study Gramatria to, to tell me these things. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a, a Gramatrian uh, as such. Mm. But I do find this interesting, that everyone talks about a physical mark of the beast. But you know, there's another mark that, uh, that Revelation points out. It's the mark of God. And you find it in the opening verses, right following the mark of the beast. The opening verses in chapter 14. Then I looked and lo, on on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, it came a symbolic number, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Mm. So there are two marks. There's the mark of the beast, and there's the mark of God. Now, no one seems to think that the mark of God is a physical mark. So I would say, well, if it's not a physical mark, why would we think the mark of the beast is a physical mark? You know, either they're both physical marks or they're both symbolic marks. But basically, it is pointing out to whom will you be identified? Will you be identified with Satan or will you be identified with God? That's the significance of the mark of the beast. I think we read too much into it. I think it is simply that, who, you know, when Joshua asked the people of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. That's the kind of thing. Will you be identified with Satan or will you be identified with God in these last days?
0: Going back to the uh, sevenfold judgments, uh, why so many?
1: Yes. Uh, it's a good question. John doesn't seem, to, you know, he, he goes through each of these, and, and he never seems to be, ever seems to be finished, you know. You read the seven seals, and you're kind of, whew, thank goodness that's over, and, and and then he's introducing the seven trumpets, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and, Whew, thank goodness that's, and then comes the seven signs, uh, but that uh, we've just been talking about, it. and then then finally, the seventh sign introduces another interval with seven angels pronouncing judgment, culminating with the earth drenched in blood. And so we we then encounter the seven plagues or the seven bowls of wrath in chapters 15 and 16. Now, um, I can't be entirely sure why John relates so many litanies of judgment and the sevenfold dragon and the seven kings and the seven stars. Uh, revelation begins with um, seven letters to the churches it continues with sevenfold judgment it's written on a seven sealed scroll announced by seven angels heralded by seven trumpets depicted through seven plagues but seven connotes the idea of completion so in other words i think what we're seeing is that, that that john is pointing out that god's judgment on the earth will be a complete judgment no one, nothing will be excluded, mm. and God will be in control of His world, and is in control of His world, and will be in control of His world to the end. Now, interestingly, the seven bowls of wrath, the seven plagues, are reminiscent of, of Egypt. I mean, they're very similar. Again, it's symbolic stuff. The idealist school helps us here. You know, you have uh, you have the plague of the source of this of the water turning into blood. We well, had those in Egypt. And and what the seven bowls are doing, the seven plagues, they're bringing judgment to its finale. Now, here's the interesting thing. By using those Egyptian plagues, I am reminded why God said he sent the plagues in the book of Exodus. He makes it very clear in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. He says, I am doing this in order that you might know I am the Lord. And there is no one beside me. And so I'm imagining that essentially what these judgments are portraying is this idea that judgment is, first of all, complete, but that ultimately the world through the Earth's tragedies will recognize that Yahweh, the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is, in fact, the God. And with the last bowl, the last plague, Civilization disintegrates and God is ultimately triumphant. So again it's a word of encouragement I mean, it, it is telling these people who are suffering persecution and it's telling us today evil may appear to have the upper hand at times and we all see that evil may appear to be strong but Revelation points out again and again that, it is, that, that evil can only operate within the confines that God has set Now, I believe, John sets, in in the last few chapters, 17 and following, after the bowls of wrath, he now sets his sights to the end of time, when evil will be finally and ultimately overthrown. And that happens now in 17, 18, 19, 20.
0: And that's the word of encouragement. Or it's a word of encouragement. That is a
1: great I mean, it is a word, isn't it? It really is a word of encouragement that ultimately this is God's world at the last. I mean, I, there's so many Christians that I encounter who, uh, you know, are kind of all doom and gloom. You know, the oh, what's happening to our world? What's happening to America? What's happening to you know different countries of the world? What's happening? I mean, and it's all oh dear, 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 and the churches, you know, the churches is not increasing in numbers, and at least not not in the West. It is in the in the global south, but you know, in the west, we're seeing uh, the decay of the church and the church imbibing the earthly stand. Oh, woe is me! And you know, you hear all this from Christians. Well, you know, they need to waken up and realize that this is not the devil's world, this is God's world. It's his at the last, it's not the devil's. He's in absolute control, he is king of kings and lord of lords. That's what Revelation is telling us that no matter what what becomes of us, no matter what persecution, no matter what disintegrates, whatever, whatever tragedies, whatever trials, whatever uh, perplexities we go through that ultimately and finally God is King of Kings and we can trust him. That's what Revelation is telling us. It, I think it's a marvellous book of, of encouragement to, a, to, to certainly to the Christians in the first century who were, who were being slain in the arenas, uh, who were being eaten by lions, who were being burned at the stake. And how those Christians were able to sing their hallelujahs in the midst of of those terrible, terrible, tragic ways of dying. I mean, the great chorus of Christians through the Roman arenas uh, and auditoriums just sounded with the voice of praise and celebration as Christians were burned to death and when they were mauled to death by lions. And Revelation uh, substantially was able to help them get there to realize that they were on the winning team, ultimately. So, yes, yeah, nice. a word of a great encouragement.
0: In Africa and Asia, is Revelation perhaps more easily seen as an encouraging word than in the United States or other Western countries?
1: I'm not sure that Christians really fully appreciate how much of an encouragement it is. That's my problem. Um, no matter whether it's in, in Africa or America, You know, it's kind of off-putting. We don't understand it, and therefore we're not going to read it uh, or we're not going to preach on it. It's just too difficult. Well, it isn't too difficult. I mean, the one thing that came shining through with with Revelation is that that God is in control of his world, and we have nothing ultimately to fear but fear itself. It doesn't matter what politics, uh, what's going on in the political arena. It doesn't matter what's going on in the international arena. These are the, the great verities, the great truths, Of Christian belief that this is God's world he is in control and even even Satan and evil is confined to what he allows them to do and ultimately he will destroy them
0: let's talk about the great city that's destroyed what is uh, can you shed any light on that
1: yeah yeah it's kind of interesting isn't it um it, it that, that really the destruction of babylon um and it's referred to as babylon because babylon was always the arch enemy of god's people of israel in particular in the old covenant because babylon was already a spent force in john's day of course rome was the was the world power mm-hmm. um babylon in chapter 17 is depicted as evil arrayed against the people of god always has been and um And so, you know, in chapter 17, he describes all her abominable characteristics. Uh, He actually identifies her in chapter 17, verses 7 to 14, as the city of Rome. And by the end of chapter 17, you have the beast and the harlot who turn on themselves for mutual destruction. So in chapter 16, the great city is destroyed. And all the attempts that that it has tried to to stifle and to silence the people of God have ultimately and finally been realized. The hmm. first century Christians would have undoubtedly recognized it as Rome. Uh, verse nine of chapter 17 is very clear that it's Rome, very clear. And, and in 17 verse eight, um, the beast is obviously Nero for those early Christians. And the historicist would want to say that There can be an immediate fulfilment and an ultimate fulfilment. In other words, could there be another beast that will come on the scene at some point? Certainly, certainly that's a possibility. Just because there is an immediate fulfilment does not preclude another fulfilment. I just, I mean, I don't know. Um, And I wouldn't like to postulate whether or not Nero is the one and only beast, or whether he prefigures another beast who is yet to come. But it's interesting that in in 17, we have so many clues. The fallen kings of uh, 17 verse 10, for example, very well refer to and probably refer to the Caesars of Rome. Uh, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius, Nero and Galba. Uh, And so the historicists have have something to teach us there. Now, the reformers identify the great city as the Catholic Church. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <See>?
1: <laughs> others have suggested uh, an apostate Israel so you know down to the ages you know and the Beast has been likened to Idi Amin and Hitler and and so on here's what we know not conjecture not here's what we can say without question the early Christians saw the great city as Rome no question there now even though succeeding generations 've suggested other contemporary people you know even even um people like Saddam hussein Islam, and so forth here's what we can reasonably deduce, I believe the great city is every city and no city.
0: Hmm.
1: It is simply humanity divorced from God that's what the great city is that's what Babylon represents, represented. In the old covenant. That's what Rome represented in the new covenant. Every city, no city. Wow. Humanity that is divorced from God. So that will be destroyed, ultimately. When we we talk about the destruction of Babylon, we're basically talking about the destruction of humanity that is apart from God.
0: Powerful. Let's talk for a moment about the reference to the millennial rule in chapter 20.
1: You know, that's interesting because, you know, you, uh, I listen to so many Christians in many, in many ways that, um, that talk about uh, whether, you know, they'll ask you, are you premillennialist or postmillennialist or mm-hmm. amillennialist or what kind of millennialist are you? And, you know, I, 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 think, I think all of that is based upon a contextual misunderstanding of chapter 20. Follow along with me, if you, if you will, here. Following the destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, Christ is joined to his bride in chapter 19. And heaven rejoices. And then Christ rides out to the ultimate conquest in chapter 19. And the beast is captured at verse 21. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now, again, that doesn't mean 999 years plus one. That's a symbolic number for a long period of time. So, you know, this is the only place in Scripture, by the way, that the millennium is is mentioned. It's the only place in all of Scripture that is mentioned. So to, to form a huge theory of it can be suspect at the very best. But it's a long period of time, whatever that is. So Satan then is bound for a thousand years, symbolic of a a protracted period of time, during which time he's restrained. Now, if I may read uh, chapter 20, let me turn over to chapter 20 here. Verse 3 actually says, I saw an angel. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into a pit, shut it, sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended now then isn't it interesting that we don't even know who the angel was who threw him into the pit hmm. we don't know the name of the angel because the devil isn't as important as we make him out to be you know that christians seem to make a big deal of this satan and the devil but he's not as important even even the the angel that casts him into the pit for a thousand years we don't even know his name the angel's name it's not the archangel michael or gabriel or any of them it's just one little angel that god said you know who wants to put the devil away oh you do <laughs> you know and he assigns signs one little angel whose name we don't know you know so so let's not let's not give the devil more than his due that's what i would say mm. now the common misconception is because chapter 20 follows chapter 19 you see chapter 19 refers to the return of christ he comes in conquest and then chapter 20 is the millennium therefore the argument is after christ comes there must be a millennium that's the common misconception because after all chapter 20 follows chapter 19 but that is based on a chronology you see a chronological understanding of revelation And I've already pointed out time and time again that there is no chronology in the book of Revelation. You cannot base an argument, a chronological argument, on the book of Revelation. It just doesn't happen. There is nothing in Revelation that is chronological. So the placement of the millennium is inconclusive. Whether it follows the return, whether it precedes it, following the defeat of Satan on the cross perhaps is an uncertain thing. We know that Satan is going to be released at the close of the millennium to engage in the last battle, but he will ultimately be devoured by fire. And then in chapter 20, towards the end, you have the final uh, judgment that comes. So the problem, you see, is that if the millennium can come before the return, then then you're premillennialist. If it comes after the, the return, then you're post-millennialist there, you know. Right. And there are those who believe, and, and I may be one of them, that Satan was defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the final battle wasn't fought, but he was, he was definitely defeated then. That that could have been the beginning of the millennium. So that would, be, that would satisfy those who would be called an amillennialist. But the reality is that you cannot have a firm picture of pre-, post-, or amillennialist on the basis of chapter 20 following chapter 19. Right. What we do know is there will be a time when Satan will be confined, that his powers will be greatly reduced. And one day, towards the end of time, He will be released, but even then, under the supervision of God.
0: So has the Bible come full circle?
1: You know, I believe it has. Basically, what you have at the end of Revelation in chapters 21 and uh, 22, you have the culmination of everything that was begun in the Garden of Eden. I think it's absolutely, it's glorious how the book brings to an end. You have, for example, in Genesis 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The end of Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that lovely? Mm. In Genesis, you have the darkness he called night. Revelation, there was no night there. Genesis, God made two great lights, the sun and the moon. Revelation says the city had no need of the sun or the moon. Genesis says, in the day that you will eat from this tree, you will surely die. Revelation says, and there will be no longer any death. Genesis tells us that Satan appears as a deceiver of humankind. In chapter 3, Revelation says Satan disappears forever. Genesis tells us that God shows a garden into which defilement entered. Revelation shows us a city into which defilement will never enter. Genesis tells us the walk of God with man was interrupted. In Revelation, the walk of God with man is resumed. And in Genesis, you have the initial triumph of the serpent. And in Revelation, you have the initial triumph of the lamb. So in Genesis, um, if I may go on just a bit more, um, he says in chapter 3, I will greatly multiply your pain revelation the last three chapters says there'll be no more pain no more crying no more mourning no more pain genesis tells us cursed is a grind because of you revelation says there'll be no longer any curse genesis says that man's dominion was broken in the fall of the first man adam revelation tells us that man's dominion is restored in the rule of the new man christ genesis tells us that the first paradise was closed revelation the new paradise is opened Genesis tells us that access to the tree of life was disinherited. Revelation tells us that the access to the tree of life was reinstated. Genesis tells us they were driven from God's presence. Revelation says they shall see his face. And so it goes on. Hmm. So yes, it has come the whole circle. The story begun in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the glory of God's creation is finally realized. In the close of this incredible, incredible book.
0: One final question. In verses 18 and 19 of the final chapter, there's a very direct warning. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Why is this warning necessary? Why such an intense threat? Well, I think it's a balance, isn't it? The book
1: begins with a blessing and ends with a blessing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It begins with the words, you know, that we, that we quoted uh, earlier on. Blessed is the person who reads this book and so forth. And and you have it again stated in chapter seven of the last chapter, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then in contrast to that, and it's used as a contrast by the writer, of course, when he says that he warns, if anyone adds or takes away, that God will take away the share of the tree of life. Basically, it is a way of emphasizing the fact that this book is a book That ought not to be tampered with. This is a book that ultimately describes the whole saga of human history from its inception to its culmination and that stands as a complete revelation from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. So it is a book that promises blessing but to emphasize that blessing it also states the
0: misuse of the book and what that will do. What a revelation. It is finished. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, right?
1: Yes, surely I am coming soon. And again, you know, the word soon, you know, would indicate that these first century Christians must surely have been blessed reading this book as they faced the lions and as they faced torment by burning. What a great encouragement to them must have been. That's why they were able to sing their hallelujahs. May we be able to sing our hallelujahs as well in the midst of our problems.
0: Absolutely. Well, join us again next time for an insightful look at the book of Ezekiel.
1: One of the lesser prophets in the sense that
0: uh, everyone kind of uh,
1: gravitates towards Isaiah and Jeremiah. But Ezekiel is a marvelous story of a man who fell in love with a woman and whose death brought him into reality of what God was speaking to to his people and through that death, was able to speak truth to God's people. It's a lovely book.
0: Should make for another excellent listen. And please remember to send your questions. We'll take time in an upcoming podcast to try and answer them. Send us an email to podcast at thewordisout.com or ask your questions directly on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.